Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the results of yesterday's Michigan primaries, which had Biden at 81% of the Democratic vote, with the uncommitted protest vote against Biden's stance on Gaza at 13%. Joining us to discuss how much Biden's ties to Netanyahu threaten his re-elections is John Nichols, The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. We will discuss his latest article at The Nation, Michigan Voters Made It Clear Biden's Gaza Policy Could Threaten His Re-Election. Then we will assess the impact of Senator McConnell's announcement today that he is stepping down from Republican leadership of the Senate in November while remaining to serve out his term. Joining us to discuss Senator Ted Cruz's role in ousting the longest-serving Senate leader who acknowledged he is out of step with Trump's GOP is Ben Jacobs, a political reporter based in Washington, D.C., who has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state elections, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House, and the Supreme Court. Previously a congressional reporter at The Guardian and The Daily Beast, his writing has also appeared in Vox, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Examiner, and The New Republic, among many others. Then finally, we'll look into the embrace of fascism by Trump's government-in-waiting on display at CPAC and speak with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics. A winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism, her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, and The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. We will discuss her article at The New Republic, CPAC 2024, This Year America, Tomorrow the World. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is John Nichols, who is The Nation magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article of The Nation is Michigan Voters Made It Clear Biden's Gaza Policy Could Threaten His Re-Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Nichols. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, John. And obviously, I want to talk to you about the primaries in Michigan yesterday, where Biden got 81% of the vote and the uncommitted got uh, 13%. But let's just begin. Uh, I'd like to get your comment on on Mitch McConnell, the, the minority leader of the Senate, stepping down from leadership in November. He's not going to leave the Senate, uh, but that's a pretty big deal. And it coincides with pressure on him to endorse Trump. And that's literally like asking the guy to drink poison. 
Um, look, the the thing about Mitch McConnell is that his entire history in Congress is uh, that of a you know somebody who sort of compromised and warped himself uh, to be around and engaged with power, um, and that's become increasingly difficult because obviously McConnell likes to exercise a little bit of his own uh, judgment, have a little bit of control over things. And, you know, with Trump, that's just not the case. With Trump, he is uh, effectively made a lieutenant, uh, someone who is supposed to do Trump's bidding. And and I think he, you know, looked ahead to that prospect that if Trump wins in November, um, he would he would have to do that again. Or, frankly, if he has to deal with Biden uh, and just decided it's it's time to jump out. But uh, I think it's very important not to mourn uh, Mitch McConnell. He's been an incredibly bad player. And, uh, you know, there's a long list of things. It's hard to determine what the worst thing he did was. Um, But, you know, I mean, you go from things like, you know, shutting down Elizabeth Warren when she was trying to reveal Jeff Sessions's uh, record of suppressing uh, minority voting rights. And, and stuff like that. And the nevertheless, she persisted uh, silencing from 2017. But, you know, beyond that, there is, of course, uh, essentially warping the U.S. Supreme Court, using the power of the Senate to prevent uh, Barack Obama from putting Merrick Garland on the Supreme Court. And then, you know, obviously in afterwards, successfully packing the court with uh, Donald Trump's nominees, uh, not just in the aftermath of the Garland case, but then also forcing through the Amy Coney Barrett nomination right before the election in uh, in 2020. And so you've got that. But then, you know, I would actually say uh, that the pinnacle of McConnell's wrongdoing as a member of the Senate was not his warping of the court, although that has a more long-term effect. It was his handling of the impeachment of Donald Trump after January 6th, because uh, there was no question McConnell acknowledged uh, Trump's high crimes and misdemeanors, but he refused to convict. And uh, and literally after the refusal to convict and after, frankly, leading a key sector of the Republicans in refusing to do so, thus preventing accountability for Trump, uh, he gave a speech that, you know, tried to make himself sound like some sort of moral leader. Um, and he added all up. And it's just it's a tragic record. It's a record that uh, that, you know, McConnell will never be ashamed of. But anybody uh, with an appropriate sense of duty to the country and respect for their oath to the Constitution would be ashamed of. So let's turn then to the Michigan primaries. And of course, Trump came in with a pretty solid victory with Nikki Haley at about 30%. She got 40% in South Carolina. So she's obviously trying to stay alive and be an alternative if Trump ends up in jail or chokes on a Big Mac. So how do you interpret the numbers of of Biden getting 81% and the uncommitted vote getting 13%? I think it's significant. Um, and it's not significant if this was a, a kind of a normal contest, right? Uh, you know, Michigan has had uncommitted on the ballot for a long time. And there's always some people that vote uncommitted. There's, there's no question of that. But, but what stood out here was that 
a significant group of elected officials and activists, uh, even the alternative weekly newspaper in Detroit, argued for an uncommitted vote as a way to send Joe Biden a message regarding his stance on Gaza and uh, his failure up to this point to really uh, use the power of the United States to rein in uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, whether Biden has that power, people can debate, but there's, it's, it's clear that uh, an awfully lot of people across the country and in Michigan feel that, that Biden has not done enough uh, to try and end the you know, murderous assault on Gaza by the Israeli military. And, uh, and so you had this organization organizing to get this vote. And I think the measure, the good measure on it is that in 2012, when Barack Obama was running for reelection for president, uh, he didn't really have much opposition. He didn't have people, no name, people floating around. And uncommitted was on the, the Michigan ballot. And 20,000 people voted for uncommitted. These are people who wanted, you know, to send whatever kind of message to Barack Obama. So if we think of that as sort of a baseline, right, about 20,000 people uh, voting uncommitted, this year you had 100,000 vote uncommitted, five times as many, and uh, a significantly higher percentage of people voting uncommitted. Again, it's not overwhelming. I mean, you know, 13% is not, not you know, a majority or, or even a plurality. But it's a significant message, and it becomes more significant because it's in Michigan. I mean, Michigan is one of the key battleground states in the country. Uh, in 2016, Donald Trump won Michigan by really pretty much a handful of votes. You know, it, 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 was, it was one of the closest uh, contests in the country. And uh, then in 2020, Biden won it by more. But, but it's important to understand that Biden won it by about two and a half percent of the vote. It wasn't some overwhelming victory. So Michigan remains competitive. The current polls show uh, more or less uh, Trump in the lead, narrow lead, but a lead. And what that means is that for Biden to win Michigan, he's got to pull together the whole of the Democratic coalition. That means exciting young people, exciting uh, Arab American, Muslim American voters, exciting black voters in Detroit, uh, key constituencies in Michigan. And if you look at the results from this, uh, this primary election, it was in those areas where Biden most needs to excite voters that the uncommitted vote did the best. It uh, got around 17 percent in uh, Wayne County, which is the Detroit and metro Detroit area. It got roughly the same percentage in Washtenaw County, which is Ann Arbor, which University of Michigan. And in some sections there, like in the city of Ann Arbor, the numbers were significantly higher. In uh, Dearborn, uncommitted actually won. Dearborn is the city with the largest uh, per capita Muslim population in the U.S. And so when you add all the pieces together, this is a bad, bad result for Joe Biden. It is one that, you know, on the surface, looks pretty good to win 81 percent. But when you dig into it, look at the nuances that are in play here. Uh, this isn't good for him. So Biden was at an ice cream shop the other day in New York after taping the late night show mm -hmm. where he said that he expected a ceasefire deal to happen in Gaza on Monday. 
that was immediately shot down by both Israel and by Hamas, saying Biden was being premature. What do you think the chances of that and what kind of impact will it have? Well, that's a very good question. Um, I, look, I don't have any doubt that Biden and uh, Anthony Blinken and other people associated with the administration are working to try and end some of the horrific violence in Gaza. I mean, you've got a death toll approaching 30,000, more than 12,000 of the dead children. Uh, this is this is something that should have stopped a long time ago. And Biden, I, I think, understands that that, you know, trying to figure out a way to end the end the death uh, is a good idea. Right. It's, it's a necessary thing. But that is a big difference between saying that you want to do that and actually making it happen. And um, this is. This is the challenging situation, frankly, at this point, because um, let me put it this way. The president may get Israel to accept a temporary, you know, a temporary cessation of violence, right? Not a ceasefire, but a temporary cessation of violence. But, you know, I think everybody who knows the region uh, suspects that whether you have temporary cessation of violence or not, the Israelis are likely, if there's any sort of, you know, even a minor problem, to resume the attack, resume the assault. And and so I don't think there's a lot of satisfaction with this. Uh, I think that what uh, generally people who are supporting a ceasefire in the United States want is an immediate permanent ceasefire, uh, one that obviously has been negotiated to some extent, but that gets you to a point where um, the Israelis stand down, the Hamas obviously stands down, and and that's difficult. I understand all the complexities of that. Um, and you and you get aid, massive amounts of aid in. But then also parallel to that, you actually, you know, start to negotiate for a different future, right? It isn't just stopping the violence, which is important and vital at this point. It's also getting to a point where the violence doesn't perpetuate, that it doesn't continue. And to do that, that gets us to the key point. To do that, um, you've got to talk about uh, some sort of financial sanctions on Israel, right? You know, holding back military funding, and or at least putting uh, strings to it, attached to it, as Bernie Sanders has suggest, suggested. And I don't think Biden's going to go there. I don't think there's any evidence that Biden's going to go there. So as a result, I, I suspect that among people who are highly concerned about Gaza, uh, which is a large portion of, of Americans and also a very large portion of, of Democrats, um, this is an ongoing problem for Biden. Well, I think the Israelis' precondition for a ceasefire is to hand over the remaining hostages. And I don't know what Israel would can give up in exchange for that, which is why I don't think Hamas is going to do that. I mean, what concessions is Israel yeah. offering because uh, Netanyahu seems to be determined to go into Rafa on uh, March the 10th. Yeah, there's talk. I mean, there is talk about, you know, a massive um, release of, of Palestinians who are currently imprisoned uh, by the Israelis. And, you know, and large numbers have, have been thrown around. And so there may be there may be some, you know, some negotiating territory there. Uh but uh, I think you're basically right that to get to a point where you'd have uh, Hamas release all of the hostages that it has, which it should do, uh, but to get to that point, 
uh, with the threat of continued hostilities, any kind of threat of continued hostilities, uh, would be unlikely, right? You know, it's, it's unlikely that Hamas would agree to that. Um, it's also, frankly, unlikely that the Israelis would agree to anything that would constrain them at the level that that might actually make a ceasefire work over time. And so you you end up in a situation where, um, you know, this is this is an intractable situation, but it is one where somebody has to draw a line. Right. Somebody has to say, you know, look. This has got to stop. The, the killing right. has got to end. Right. No, known as that, adult supervision. <laughs> adult that, supervision well, that, that, of the, the very thing that's been lacking that. in decades of uh, U.S.-Israeli-Palestinian yeah. negotiations. So just, uh, I just wanted to finish up, though, on, on domestic sure. politics. And when is the hand-wringing and bedwetting going to stop amongst Democrats about Biden's age, <laughs> Vice President Harris's qualifications? It's so inevitable that they are running for president, and they are the. They're going to be they, the nominees. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. maybe there's some doubt on the Republican side, but there shouldn't be any doubt Not on much. the Democrat side. No, I mean it's a, look, we're we're on we're pretty much on a repeat repeat cycle, right? We're very very likely the only person who's not going to be in play in 2024 is Pence, um, and but but otherwise, I think you, you're going to see very familiar tickets, and you know, look, the discussion about Biden. Age will not end this week because Mitch McConnell, who's roughly the same age, is stepping down. And that will probably, you know, spark a little bit more discussion there about whether Biden should stay, et cetera. Although it's important to note that McConnell's stepping down from leadership, not stepping down from the Senate. He'll continue to serve there uh, for a considerably longer period of time. And and so, you know, I just think that there's only one way to get beyond the hand wringing, and that is very simple, for Joe Biden to hit the road, right? And Joe Biden needs to get out of Washington and spend a lot of time in battleground states uh, talking to people and, and, and not saying that he's prepared to serve a second term, but showing it. I mean, this is, this is the, the practical demand of American democracy, right? If you're asking for people's votes, you, you give them an indication that you're you're ready to do what they would hope you would do. And so I don't think Biden is well served by, you know, hanging out in D.C. and then maybe going up and doing a TV show in New York and eating an ice cream cone. Uh, I'm talking about hard work. And and if it is too much hard work, right, if it's too much to ask uh, Joe Biden to go out and spend a lot of time on the campaign trail working very, very hard, um, then, you know, that's the point at which, you know, obviously he and his aides, family, you know, consider whether whether he's prepared, whether he wants to do this. Um, my sense is that Biden does want to do that second term. I don't I see no indication that he doesn't want to. And so um, then he's got to win it. And to win it, you have to go and do a lot of campaigning. That's, that's yeah, an expectation. Right. You got to be in it to win it, right? That's right. Yeah. Right. Simple well, calculus. Okay, John. Well, good to talk to you. Thanks a lot. It's a total pleasure to be with you, Ian. Thanks for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with John Nichols, who's the Nation Magazine's Washington correspondent. His books include People Get Ready, The Fight Against a Jobless Economy and a Citizenless Democracy, The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics, and most recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. And his latest article at The Nation is Michigan Voters Made It Clear Biden's Gaza Policy Could Threaten His Re-Election. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an assessment of the impact of Senator McConnell's announcement today that he's stepping down from Republican leadership of the Senate in November while remaining to serve out his term. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ben Jacobs, a political reporter based in Washington, D.C., who has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state elections, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House, and the Supreme Court. Previously a congressional reporter for The Guardian and The Daily Beast, his writing has also appeared in Vox, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Examiner, and The New Republic, and many others. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ben Jacobs. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, what uh, what do you make of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell's speech today on the floor where he announced that he's stepping down in November but will serve out his term in the Senate? It's, it's, it's clearly the end of, prob- of an era in Republican politics. It's certainly perhaps, you know, you could argue that even beyond Trump that uh, Mitch McConnell is the defining figure of the American right so far in the 21st century. And uh, McConnell's influence in shaping the Republican Party and shaping uh, and shaping the politics of America is 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 you know almost unquestionable. But it does mark the end of sort of the McConnell era in politics and raises questions about uh, about what the Republican Party will look like now that it's far more shaped by Trump uh, than McConnell and people of his generate political generation. So then, do you think? that McConnell blew it in as much as he voted to acquit Trump in the impeachment. And then he made a very impassioned speech uh, about how Trump was responsible for January the 6th. And they actually went as far as to suggest to the Democrats, you can go after this guy because he's no longer president. He almost gave them a roadmap. But then they all dropped the ball, both him and McCarthy, in terms of, of going after Trump and getting rid of him or purging him at that moment just after January the 6th. So was that a missed opportunity? Because obviously now Trump's ascended and his and the legacy of Ronald Reagan's GOP uh, will end up on the ash heap of history. Yeah, I, I think certainly that'll be probably one of the key decisions of Mitch McConnell's career, that he had calculated that Donald Trump was a spent force in American politics after January 6th, and it turned out he was totally wrong that McConnell has never been close to Trump, that he, you know, he and Trump haven't talked since the effort to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, but uh, he clearly underestimated the, the lingering influence of Trump and uh, that decision uh, not to not to purge the Republican Party of Trump 
at that time will carry real consequences. It's it's certainly one of the two most consequential decisions that McConnell has made in his career, along with not filling the Supreme Court seat uh, vacated by uh, the death of Antonin Scalia um, in 2016. So in the speech, uh, he more or less acknowledged uh, what we're talking about, Ben, right? That this is no longer Ronald Reagan's GOP. What'd you make of that? I, I think it's it's a it's a fair it's a fair statement and one that can uh, that that I think you know I don't think anyone would particularly uh, particularly argue with that as the uh, as the party has changed um, you know and that he made a he made an argument in his speech uh, also that was sort of a guard argument for AT Ukraine which has been such a big issue within within the Republican Party um, to tie it to, to Ronald Reagan's legacy. Uh, so that's that's a big big issue into the big question as the shape of the Republican Party will change whether McConnell's uh, traditional Republican foreign policy view of things will, will hold steady or whether it will continue to be eroded as more Donald Trump proteges uh, get elected in coming years. Well, he did say that I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. And of course, he was referring to the 60 billion in aid to yes. Ukraine. And apparently at the White House meeting on Tuesday, there was a piling on just about everybody in the room were piling on Mike Johnson to get it done. That's what Schumer said. He described the meeting as intense. So what's the connection there? Do you think that uh, McConnell has quit leadership to free himself up to really advocate more for aid to Ukraine? And, and what's the connection with what happened yesterday in the Oval Office? I, I'm, it's hard to draw a, a precise connection after all McConnell sort of talked at the top of his speech about his wife's sister dying and the, you know, the Kentucky Republican certainly taking taking stock of whether this is whether this is a job he continues to want to do that there's you know there's there's a natural battle for succession succession and for mcconnell you know to make the decision about running for re-election that you know if he continued to have this position going into 2025 either once again you know either be dealing with a president trump or president you know president biden uh neither of which are particularly appealing positions for him to be in, uh, both present their own unique frustrations. And that part of this, you know, maybe is just the passing of the torch that he is 82 years old. And, uh, and you know, it's a taxing job and one which he certainly has physically diminished in recent years. But do you think that his stepping down from the leadership of the Republicans in the Senate has something to do with the endorsement of Trump because there's a, obviously a lot of pressure on him to make a decision, and it's almost like he just doesn't want to drink that poison. Certainly, certainly not. Though I think that you know because he's not stepping down until after the 2024 election, that he's still going to be in this position of power for the next year, and still is going to be in a position where he's going to want to shape who his successor is, and I and I in that that political calculation is still there that he's still in a politically sensitive position that he's not able to go to go totally maverick now. So let's talk about the knives. Uh, it's almost like Julius Caesar, A2 Brute. The real knife that stabbed him in the back is 
the senator from Texas, uh, Ted Cruz, and he went openly uh, recently called for for McConnell to step down. What do you know about the kind of Shakespearean quality that I just referred to in terms of Julius Caesar? I, well, I think, uh, I, I, you know, I don't think that, you know, Ted Cruz going after Mitch McConnell came as much as the prior, you know, it's not like Brutus going after Julius Caesar, but Ted Cruz has been going after Mitch McConnell almost since he got elected to the U.S. Senate. And that there's always been a sort of cadre of Republican senators who have been deeply unhappy with McConnell and McConnell's leadership. You know, Cruz has always been vocal among those and that that rump was had become growing, becoming more of a factor within the Republican conference. But it's, but, you know, McConnell, uh, it's still represented a distinct minority within the conference. So one that likely to continue to grow uh, every two years with uh, congressional elections. So what then is the sort of breakdown of the pro-McConnell and anti-McConnell Republicans in the Senate? Would that be, would that coincide with the recent uh, vote uh, on the border that Trump torpedoed, that Senator Langford put together? Uh, it, it's, it's, it would be, it'd be different than that, that there obviously was an effort to depose McConnell led by Rick Scott of Florida at the... Uh, at the beginning of the year, um, at the beginning of last year, rather, where about a dozen uh, dozen Senate Republicans participated in that, that it's folks who are malcontents or hard right wingers, uh, that it's not it's not by any means a majority within the conference, but one that uh, has become more more truculent to deal with as time has passed on. So, what would then be the likely successor? If you know, God forbid, it's not. Rick Scott or Ted Cruz, right? It might be somebody less far right. Yeah, the expectation is that it'll be one of uh, three senators named John, uh, John Cornyn of Texas, John Thune of South Dakota, and John Barrasso of Wyoming. Uh, you know, Cornyn was McConnell's number two for a while until he was terminated out or replaced by Thune. Barrasso's been the uh, been the number three Senate Republican uh, for a while, and then it sort of one of those three that uh, Barras was perceived as a bit more conservative than Cornyn or Thune, that, uh, but they're, they're all, you know, within the broad mainstream of, of Senate Republicans. Uh, and, it, and it becomes as much about the interpersonal uh, dynamics within what's going to be a group of, you know, roughly, you know, 48 to 53, 53 people this time next year. But none of them have the parliamentary skills, right, that McConnell has? Uh, certainly not, but McConnell has sort of had an un, uh, has had a unique uh, unique role as not just having parliamentary skills, but having been leader at this point for, you know, the better part of 20 years that he's, you know, that, that, that if there's a learning curve for whoever would uh, would replace him. Right. What are you expecting then in the, in the months up until... He steps down in November. We actually won't step down until January of next year. What do you think his priorities will be? I've been reading some pundits suggesting that he wants to sort of free himself in a way so that he can put all of his energies into getting aid to Ukraine, that that is his number one priority. No, that's, that's certainly a priority, but it's also not only that is ensuring a Republican majority of the Senate and making sure that Republicans pick up seats and he's obviously been active in ensuring that you know Republicans have candidates he considers strong uh, going into 2024 
but it's essentially a sort of a job of management to get Ukraine done, to continue to advance uh, his political priorities and to set up whoever his successor is with a, with a Republican majority. But is there any sort of hope on the part of McConnell and the few that are left there that aren't MAGA Republicans that something will happen to Trump? Or and, I mean, I'm assuming that's why Nikki Hale is still in the race. It's not looking good for her. So I guess, are they still hoping, uh, McConnell? I, 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 certainly, I think, I think, you know, it's possible for people to still hope, but I think most Republicans at this point you know, have have accepted the fact that Donald Trump is the likely nominee, and it's sort of what can, how you deal with that, and what concessions you make to that uh, to that reality, uh, rather than uh, hoping for some sort of uh, you know, barring barring some sort of miracle or some sort of uh, shocking you know some sort of shocking action that it's likely that it'll be a a Trump Biden general election. Right. Well, it's sort of a little odd to be. <laughs> seeing Mitch McConnell as a, a fine, upstanding exemplar of the old Republican tradition going back to Ronald Reagan because Trump's GOP is is so radical, right? I mean, a lot of analysts have suggested that Ronald Reagan would not be allowed in Trump's Republican Party. So to that extent, are we forgetting some of the... <laughs> The more partisan things, to put it mildly, that uh, McConnell did, like not allowing President Obama's choice for the Supreme Court to even get a hearing. It's it's certainly uh, it's certainly a, a situation in which uh, in which you know McConnell certainly how he's uh, it's being graded on a curve at this point um, that. Uh, that uh, that you know Trump's Trump's emergence within the Republican Party has certainly reset how politics are viewed by everybody, and that. Uh, but but it's hard to separate McConnell from Trump. That you know McConnell's decision to uh, hold on to that court seat um, and to avoid a vote that brinksmanship certainly played a key role in contributing to uh, Donald Trump's election in the first place, and that it's. You know their their legacies are interwound as much as the two men personally do not have much of a relationship, to say the least. Well, but didn't he also McConnell help Trump get this supermajority of far right justices because yes. he rushed through the Amy Coney Barrett nomination mm-hmm. while while the Ruth Bader Ginsburg's body was hardly even cold. Yes, uh, yes, but yeah, that 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 was one sense in which McConnell's goals aligned with aligned with Trump's and McConnell's desire to remake the American judiciary to be far more conservative, and certainly at least through most of Trump's first term, that uh, you know that the process by which judges were picked and vetted through was very much a McConnell influence process. With uh, with the uh, you know he was driving the car uh, rather than rather than the former president. So. Where does it come down there, just in wrapping up here, Ben? I mean, are we, as I say, are we so far down the MAGA rabbit hole that we're sort of <laughs> grasping at anybody that's not totally rabid in terms of MAGA politics? I, I think that that's certainly the sense, uh, certainly the sense that you're seeing from uh, from a lot of folks viewing uh Viewing uh, McConnell's departure from the Senate on the left, that uh, at least 
at least you know that he uh, was was someone they could uh, rely to keep their word, um, who had a sort of coherent traditional point of view, um, and that was at least a worthy adversary in a way that you see a lot more just sheer contempt for for Trump and certainly for some of the Republicans who approved who followed in Trump's footsteps and certainly compared to how they view Mike Johnson zigzagging uh, zigzagging without any decision on the House. Right. Well, just in closing, he did, of course, refer to the death of, of his wife's youngest sister who drowned in a ranch in Texas. When you lose a loved one, particularly at a young age, there's a certain introspection that accompanies the grieving process. Perhaps it is God's way of reminding you of your own life's journey to prioritize the impact of the world that we will inevitably leave behind. So a philosophical moment there. When and, and indeed, indeed. And it's sort of hard to separate the politics of it from, from the personality of it. Um, that, you know, even, even, even our politicians are, are people too. <laughs> I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it, Ben. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Ben Jacobs, who's a political reporter based in Washington, D.C., who has covered three presidential campaigns and countless federal and state elections, as well as Capitol Hill, the White House, and the Supreme Court. And previously, he was a congressional reporter for The Guardian and The Daily Beast. And his writing has also appeared in Vox, New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Washington Examiner, The New Republic, and many others. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into the embrace of fascism by Trump's government in waiting on display at CPAC. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of American politics a winner of the Hillman Prize in Opinion and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as the op-ed pages of The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, and she has an article at The New Republic, CPAC 2024, This Year America, Tomorrow the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Adele Stan. Great to be with you, Ian. So, Adele, your, the title of your article is undoubtedly a reference to Hitler's infamous boast, uh, Gestern Deutschland, heute Europa, morgen die Welt. So, <laughs> and there's no doubt that it's appropriate in your coverage of CPAC because there were Nazis at CPAC giving Hitler salute. And uh, yeah, it, needless, needless to say, there's a lot to talk about in terms of uh, what Bannon and company were up to. So, was there more than well, a whiff of fascism? Yeah. Yeah, more than a whiff, indeed. I mean, and it's all of a piece. I mean, you've got to remember that Bannon um, was, uh, you know, very um, excited about the whole Charlottesville escapade, right? I mean, you know, and there were real Nazis there, too. You know, it's, uh, Steve Bannon has, you know, it's been his project for some time now. Uh, to try to bust up all of the governance institutions of the West, 
of the Western world. Um, and, you know, of course, in the United States government as well. And, you know, there, there was just flat out talk against democracy at this event um, at, at CPAC and various uh, fora there. And right now he and the whole event was almost a cover. It seemed almost a cover for a gathering of these right wing authoritarian leaders and and would be leaders, um, you know, throughout the world. And on Wednesday night, there was this conference uh, where Bannon presided at a gathering called CPAC's International Summit. And there he was with a former UK Prime Minister, obviously an undistinguished one, Hungary's ambassador <laughs> to the US, Argentina's security minister, the heads of uh, CPAC in, uh, in Japan, Australia and Hungary, and also, of course, the head of CPAC, Chairman Matt Schlapp, with his wife Mercedes, who apparently, uh, I don't know whether she's concerned about the lawsuit against her husband for sexually assaulting a young man, but... Um, not showing it, not showing it. You know, <laughs> well, she's probably she instructed to show it. the opposite. <laughs> so it's amazing, isn't it? And this homophobic party, you know, the champion of the, ah. the right wing. I mean, there's more than one accusation, by the way, against him from his attempts to seduce young men. But um, Yes, yes, but, that's, but this is the lawsuit that was um, actually... Uh, a member of his CPAC staff was served with a subpoena that very day, the same day as that inter- so-called international summit, um, it, because of some uh, shredding activity that took place in um, in the CPAC offices, allegedly having to do with uh, with the this lawsuit. Um, so um, it, it, it was just, and of course, Wayne Lapierre was, you know, in a courtroom. <laughs> in New York that day, um, the the former uh, executive director of the National Rifle Association, which used to be a huge um, sponsor of CPAC, um, and there wasn't even a leaflet with their insignia on it to be found at this thing. Well, it does seem, though, that what you had there was Trump's government-in-waiting with Bannon and Rick Grinnell, the former disastrous acting new National Security Council advisor and ambassador to Germany. Um, right. And I mean, KT McFarlane, who was there. Um, I didn't get them all listed in my piece, but she was the former uh, deputy national security advisor. And there was a former ambassador to Denmark. And uh, and then, you know, um, and and they said as much about, Bannon said as much, I, I don't know if it's Bannon or Schlapp said as much about Rick Rennell, well, that, you know, he would be a really great Secretary of State, don't you think? Yeah. Mm, not not uh, um, Jared Kushner? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be some special, special carve-out job for Jared, just as uh, there always has been. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, he's probably going to put up the half a billion to bail out his father-in-law, right? <laughs> or get or get his friends in uh, Saudi Arabia to do so. Well, but, exactly. But at some of the video I saw of CPAC, uh, I, I did see Bannon, where he turned to you guys in the press and said, I'm talking mm-hmm. to you, you know, in this kind of yeah. mafia way. And he said, Trump won in 2020. Get that into your heads. And then he started right. to chant, Trump won, Trump won, Trump won. Right. 
I mean, it's scary to look into the eyes of somebody that is lying and knows he's lying, but he's lying like Goebbels lied. There's a purpose. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. He's very strategic and purposeful. doesn't mean that he doesn't screw up sometimes, right? And it doesn't mean that just because he's not the great man of history, he thinks he is, that he isn't dangerous. He's profoundly dangerous. And now he has, and now this show, this CPAC show, which is still a big show, uh, despite it's, you know, uh, know, falling into some disrepute, uh, he's really got a lot of control over it um, because Schlapp is so weakened by these accusations we discussed, right? So, uh, so he needs Bannon, and Schlapp has also always been part of this internationalist project, um, though you know less deeply than Bannon. And so you have this perfect situation where you have this infrastructure for this conference that used to draw thousands of people, um, and they kept the infrastructure. So you have this big stage set and great production values on the live stream and fabulous lighting and 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 then you have uh, along the you have a radio what what used to be called a radio row but of course there's also video sets podcast sets all that kind of thing uh, lining the halls and none of it's mainstream media and you know and Bannon makes a point of saying we don't need the legacy media anymore because they're crea- they're crafting all of the videos out of all of these speeches they the the conference is a cover for this convening of global fascists um i'm sure you know it's all tax exempt the the, the airfares and all that stuff cuz cpac is a nonprofit and you know it's just a, a grift upon fascist grift but it has this sort of international uh, feel to it because you've got Brazil's Bolsonaro's son. You've got a president of, of Spain's far-right Vox party. You've got the leader of El Salvador and you know, Millet from Argentina. I mean, uh, yep. this kind of a who's who, isn't it? It is. A rogues gallery, whatever you want to call it, right? But um, it truly is, you know, kind of a who's who of the, of the global right. And, you know, I could only focus on but so much, and, and I really made it my mission to look at this particular aspect of CPAC because it's not getting a lot of coverage. You know, the, 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 the domestically understandable kind of fascism is, but sort of the, this whole global project is not. Um, but, you know, you also heard from the stage, like, calls to rain hellfire missiles down on Latin America. This is supposed to be the people who don't want to end forever wars in Ukraine, right? Um but uh, to, to, to kill the cartel, that's what we should be doing. Um, Tommy Moran, a former ICE official, I believe he was, he, he called for that. Um, and I forget who else. It was a, another, another a former Trump official, I believe. I mean, and then the anti-trans rhetoric throughout the whole thing um, was just, you know, really horrific. Um, because immigrants, migrants, and 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 trans people, the most voiceless people, right, in, in mm-hmm. America. So, yeah. So I guess they couldn't invite uh, their hero, Vladimir Putin, right? Because he has a <laughs> arrest warrant out <laughs> from the International Criminal Court. And they made a show, and 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 Putin, aided by Putin, of of kind of distancing themselves from Putin, right? Because you got to remember, this happened the week that Navalny was killed, 
um, the the Russian dissident, uh, Putin's only true rival. Uh, he was he died in a Russian prison, and a few days before that, um, Putin was uh, was looking at Trump's antics, I'm sure, and uh, taking cue from Trump's. Uh, comments um the prior week about nato and and how uh he you know he thinks russia should go and have its way with any nato member that's not quote-unquote paying up which isn't exactly how it works but anyway um uh then you know putin came out uh in an interview with russian television saying oh well he'd really prefer joe biden as president you know, he'd really right. prefer Joe Biden because well, he's more predictable. That's Putin being smart. And that's a wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah, right? Well, no, obviously yeah. he's not going to say, I want Donald Trump. That would not help Donald Trump. So, Right, right, exactly. And he knows that people who, who you know, voters, the, 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 the less informed voters who are just going to, you know, who vote every four years, don't know a whole lot of things. They know they don't like Putin. Putin has a, a 90% disapproval rating among all American citizens. So he knows they don't like Putin. Um, so anyway, so that that was crazy. And so they passed this resolution at this international summit where they, they condemned the police tactics of um, Xi, uh, China's Xi of, um, of Lula da Silva in Brazil, and um Putin and Biden yeah so um hmm. so it was really it's 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 crazy land you know it's crazy land but at the same time you have JD Vance on the stage senator JD Vance uh saying um that why should we be worried about a border conflict 6000 miles away referring to Ukraine when we have a conflict on our own border you know so this is this is what this is and and outright outright uh, dismissal of democracy um uh coming from one of uh, Bannon's uh, associates Jack Posobiec coming from the stage in the form of CPAC Hungary's uh, uh Miklos uh, Janto um you know it it really does boggle the mind and because it's so strange and weird and exhausting you, you know Legacy media are not paying attention to this. When they come to CPAC, it's to see Trump, it's to see the elected officials, you know, play the campaign game, and that's it. Right. Well, I don't think you're the only journalist who's covering the, the Trump's government in waiting, because that's who they are, right? I mean, they're, they're already ready to hit the ground running, aren't they? Bannon and, uh, and Grinnell and all these creeps. Cash Patel, oh, the whole. Sorry. Yeah, he was crew. on the stage too. Yeah, yep. Uh, and they, and they, 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 you know, contend they're going to be able to push three thousand civil servants out of, out of their jobs and replace them with their own people on like day one. And Trump yeah. had signed an executive order to that effect before he left office, um, but Biden had rescinded it. Right. So. And Stephen Miller, of course, is, is planning on these concentration camps. So. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And I'm sure he's had his hand in that uh, Heritage Foundation 2025 project, which is all about finding the right people for all those positions. Right. Well, um, the only good news, and I did talk to a reporter the other day during the conference, that it was lackluster compared to earlier ones. So maybe there's less of a bite and more of a bark with the, the MAGA crowd. What do you think? 
I think that the that if you look at the conference, if you judge the conference as on its success as a conference, you're missing the point. I think you're missing the point. The, like I said, the infrastructure of the conference has been appropriated for other projects. So, you know, it doesn't matter if the room is full because the live stream looks great. And then you can slice and dice all of that video and use it for all kinds of purposes. And you have cover to convene all of these international uh, thugs by, you know, uh, offering them speaking slots. Um, so I think that CPAC as it used to be, yes, that that, that is gone and it uh, and it's probably not coming back in that form. But is CPAC as it exists now in its diminished form still a powerful vehicle for the far right and even further right than it used to be? Indeed it is. So I would be careful about the lens or the frame through which we look at the apparently sorry state of CPAC. So we can't take comfort in thinking that the looming clouds of American fascism are not uh, being swept away by the disinfectant of sunlight. This is really a clear and present (laughs) danger. Uh, Absolutely, because you've got to remember, fascists don't win by being a majority, you know? That's not how it works. You know, it, 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 people get swept along with with what they feel is a trend or tide or disinformation. Um, these people cheat. <laughs> they don't. They, they have no conscience of norms. So, uh, so it's so they remain a danger as long as they're willing to break all these norms and say all these things out in public. Well, that's clear that the entire GOP, of which of course has been captured by Donald Trump, would rather uh, cheat than compete. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it's not as if there's, you know, it's not as if there's not been reporting. It's just that there seems to be a lack of indignation um, among the general population and even among journalists. I mean, I think um, I think people are exhausted. Right. Well, just in closing, you know, the Trump Russia story is where the journalists are, are AWOL because they think it's an old story. And yeah, you know, right. Bill, Bill Barr managed to sidetrack the Mueller report. And God, how can't you notice <laughs> Trump's fealty to Putin? His statements against NATO. Uh, now we're finding out, of course, that the whole basis of the House GOP's impeachment against Biden and his son Hunter is based upon Russian intelligence. Russian intelligence, indeed. Indeed. I mean, and none of this has ever been a big secret. I mean, people have been writing about, like, all, all of the, the Russian mob that occupied uh, Trump Tower, you know, before his presidency. I mean, all these ties uh, are, are so evident. Um, and the, the media, the legacy media, the mainstream media are very easily cowed, you know, by being called mean names. You know, whether it's being called anti-religious because they cover the religious right or, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, being being called alarmist because they use the word fascist to describe fascist. I mean, <laughs> to call a lie a lie, all of that. Um, the the mainstream media are easily cowed and, you know, it's, it's a capitalist corporate structure. So it's always going to be an appeal to the broadest 
possible audience if you're looking for your news from legacy media. Now, that used to be a common, those used to be commonly held stories based on commonly held facts, which they no longer are, and that makes things even worse. I'm so well, cheerful. I'm so well, sorry. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, nevertheless. For, uh, I appreciate it, Adele. It's always good to be with you, Ian. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Adele Stan, an independent journalist who is a longtime chronicler of the right wing of U.S. politics, a winner of the Hillman Prize for Opinions and Analysis Journalism. Her work has appeared in Mother Jones, The Nation, The American Prospect, as well as on the op-ed pages of The New York Times and The Los Angeles Times. And she has an article at The New Republic, CPAC 2024, This Year, America, Tomorrow, The World. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.